Chapter 3 It was a soft winter's morning as the party came down the little slope towards the entrance gate of the tower next day. The rain last night had cleared the air, and the sun shone as through thin veils of haze, kindly and sweet. The river on the right was at high tide, and up from the water's edge came the cries of the boatmen, pleasant and invigorating. The sense of unreality was deeper than ever on Marjorie's mind. One incredible thing after another, known to her only in the past by rumor and description, and imagined in a frame of glory, was taking shape before her eyes. She was in London. She had slept in Cheapside. She had talked with Father Campion. He was with her now. This was the Tower of London that lay before her, a monstrous huddle of grey towers and battlemented walls along which passed the scarlet of the livery and the gleam of arms. All the way that they had walked, her eyes had been about her everywhere, the eyes of a startled child, through which looked the soul of a woman. She had seen the folks go past like actors in a drama. London merchants, apprentices, a party of soldiers, a group on horseback. She had seen a congregation pour out of the doors of some church whose name she had asked and had forgotten again. The cobbled patches of street had been a marvel to her. The endless roofs, the white and black walls, the leaning windows, the galleries where heads moved, the vast wharfs, the crowding masts resembling a stripped forest, the rolling gated sailors, and, above all, the steady murmur of voices and footsteps never ceasing, beyond which the crowing of cocks and the barking of dogs sounded far off and apart. These things combined to make a kind of miracle that all at once delighted, oppressed, and bewildered her. Here and there some personage had been pointed out to her by the trim merry gentleman who walked by her side with his sword swinging. Anthony went with his sister just behind as they threaded their way through the crowded streets, and the two men-servants followed. She saw a couple of city dignitaries in their furs, with stavesmen to clear the road, a little troop of the Queen's horse, blazing with color, under the command of a young officer who might have come straight from romance. But she was more absorbed, or, rather, she returned every instant to the man who walked beside her with such an air and talked so loudly and cheerfully. Certainly, it seemed to her, his disguise was perfect, and himself the best part of it. She compared him in her mind with a couple of ministers, splendid and awful in their gowns and ruffs whom they had met turning into one of the churches just now, and smiled at the comparison. And yet perhaps these were preachers too, and eloquent in their own fashion. And now here was the tower, the end of all things, so far as London was concerned. Beyond it she saw the wide rolling hills, the bright reaches of the river, and the sparkle of Placentia far away. "'Her grace is at Westminster these days,' exclaimed the priest. "'She is moving to Hampton Court in a day or two, so I doubt not we shall be able to go in and see a little.' We shall see, at least, the outside of the paradise where so many holy ones have lived and died. There are three or four of them here now, but the most of them are in the fleet or in the marshalsea. Marjorie glanced at him. She did not understand. I mean Catholic prisoners, mistress. There are several of them in ward here, but we had better speak no names. He wheeled suddenly as they came out into the open and moved to the left. There is Tower Hill, mistress, where my lord Cardinal Fisher died and Thomas More. Marjorie stopped short but there was nothing great to see, only a rising ground, empty and bare, with a few trimmed trees. The ground was without grass. A few cobbled paths crossed this way and that. And here is the gateway, he said, whence they come out to glory. And there on the right, he swept his arm towards the river, you may see, if you are fortunate, other criminals called pirates hung there till they be covered by three tides. Still standing there, with Mr. Babington and his sister come up from behind, he began to relate the names of this tower and of that in the great tumbled mass of buildings surmounted by the high keep. But Marjorie paid no great attention except with an effort. She was brooding rather on the amazing significance of all that she saw. It was under this gateway that the martyrs came. It was from those windows and that tower which the priest had named just now that they had looked. And this was Father Campion. She turned and watched him as he talked. He was dressed as he had been dressed last night, but with a small cloak thrown over his shoulders. He gesticulated freely and easily, pointing out this and that. Now and again his eyes met hers, and there was nothing but a grave merriment in them. 
Only once or twice his voice softened, as he spoke of those great ones that had shown Catholics how both to die and live. And now, he said, with your permission I will go and speak to the guard and see if we may have entrance. It was almost with terror that she saw him go, a solitary man with the price on his head, straight up to those whose business it was to catch him. Armed men, as she could see, she could even see the quilted jacks they wore, who, it may be, had talked of him in the guardroom only last night. But his air was so assured and so magnificent that even she began to understand how complete such a disguise might be. And she watched him speaking with the officer with a touch even of his own humor in her heart. Indeed, there was some truth in charge of the Jesuitry after all. Then the figure turned and beckoned, and they went forward. A certain horror, in spite of herself and her company, fell on her as she passed beneath the solid stone vaulting, passed along beneath the towering wall, turned up from the water gate, and came out into the wide court round which the lieutenant's lodgings, the little church, and the enormous white tower itself are grouped. There was a space, not enclosed in any way, but situated within a web of paths not far from the church, that caught her attention. She stood looking at it. "'Yes, mistress,' said the priest behind her. "'That is the place of execution for those who die within the tower, those usually of royal blood.' My Lady Salisbury died there, and my Lady Jane Grey, and others. He laid his hand gently on her arm. You must not look so grave, he said. You must gape more. You are a country cousin, madam. And she smiled in spite of herself as she met his eyes. Tell me everything, she said. They went together nearer to the church and faced about. We can see better from here, he said. Then he began. First there was the lieutenant's lodgings on the right. They must look well at that. Interviews had taken place there that had made history. He mentioned a few names. Then further down on the right, beyond that corner round which they had come just now, was the famous water gate, called Traitor's Gate, through which passed those convicted of treason at Westminster, or at least those who were under grave suspicion. Such as these came, of course, by water, as prisoners on whose behalf a demonstration might perhaps be made if they came by land. So, at least, he understood was the reason of the custom. Her grace herself once came that way, he said with a twinkle. Now she sends other folks in her stead. Then he pointed out more clearly the White Tower. It was there that the council sat on affairs of importance. And it is there, began Anthony harshly. The priest turned to him, suddenly grave, as if in reproof. Yes, he said softly, it is there that the passion of the martyrs begins. Marjorie turned sharply. You mean? Well, he said, it is there that the council sits to examine prisoners both before and after the question. They are taken downstairs to the question and brought back again after it. It was there that... He broke off. Who is this? He said. The court had been empty while they talked, except that, on the far side, beneath the towering cliff of the keep, a sentry went to and fro. But now another man had come into view, walking up from the way they themselves had come, and it would appear from the direction he took that he would pass within twenty or thirty yards of them. He was a tall man, dressed in sad-colored clothes, with a felt hat on his head and the usual sword by his side. He was plainly something of a personage, for he walked easily and confidently. He was still some distance off, but it was possible to make out that he was sallowish in complexion, wore a trimmed beard, and had something of a long throat. Father Campion stared at him a moment, and as he stared, Marjorie heard Mr. Babington utter a sudden exclamation. Then the priest, with one quick glance at him, murmured something which Marjorie could not hear, and walked briskly off to meet the stranger. Come, said Anthony in a sharp, low voice, we must see the church. Who is it? whispered Mistress Alice, with even her serene face a little troubled. For the first moment, as they walked towards the entrance of the church, Anthony said nothing. Then, as they reached it, he said, in a tone quite low and yet full of suppressed passion of some kind, a name that Marjorie could not catch. She turned before they went in and looked again. The priest was talking to the stranger and was making gestures as if asking for direction. "'Who is it, Mr. Babington?' she asked again as they went in. "'Topcliffe,' said Anthony. The horror was still on the girl as they went, an hour later, up the ebbing tide towards Westminster, in a boat rowed by a waterman and one of their own servants. 
About them was a scene of which the very thought a month ago would have absorbed and fascinated her. They had scarcely passed through London Bridge, finding themselves just in time before the fall of the water would have hindered their passage, leaving out of sight the grey sunlit heap of buildings from which they had come. All about them the river was gay with shipping. Wherries, like clumsy water beetles, lurched along out of the current, or slipped out suddenly to make their way across from one stairs to another. A great barge coming downstream grew larger every instant, its prow bright with gilding, and the throb of the twelve oars in the rowlocks coming to them like the grunting of a beast. On either side of the broad stream rose the houses and the churches, those on this side visible down to their shining window panes in the sunlight and the very texture of their tiled roofs, those on the other a mere huddle of countless walls and gables in the shadow, and between them showed the leafless trees, stretches of green meadow across which moved tiny figures and the brown flats of the marshes beyond, broken here and there by outlying villages a mile or two away. Behind them now towered the great buildings on London Bridge, the chapel, the houses, the old gateway on the south end, above which the impaled heads of traders stood out against the bright sky. It was a tolerable crop just now, the priest had said, bitterly smiling. But above all else, as the boat moved up, Marjorie kept her eyes fixed on far-off Westminster, on the grey towers and the white walls where Elizabeth reigned and St. Edward slept, while within her mind, clear as a picture, she saw still the empty court as she had seen it when the priest fetched them out again from the church, empty at last of the hateful presence which he had faced so confidently. It appeared to me best to speak with him openly, said the priest quietly, as they had waited ten minutes later on the wharf outside the tower while the men ran to make ready their boat. I do not know why, but I suppose I am one of those who better like their danger in front than behind. I knew him at once, I have had him pointed out to me two or three times before, so I looked him in the eyes and asked him whether some ladies from the country might be permitted to see the White Tower, and to whom we had best apply. He told me that was not his affair, and looked me up and down as he said it, and then he went his way to the White Tower, where I doubt not he had business. He said no more? asked Anthony. No, he said no more, but I shall know him again better next time, and he me. It seemed of evil omen to the girl that she should have had such an encounter on the day that Robin came back. Like all persons who dwell much in the country, a world that was neither that of the flesh nor yet of the spirit was that in which she largely moved, a world of strange laws and auspices, and this answering to this and that to that. It is a state inconceivable to those who live in the noise and movement of town, who find town life, that is, the life in which they are most at ease. For where men have made the earth that is trodden underfoot, and have largely veiled the heavens themselves, it is but natural that they should think that they have made everything, and that it is they who rule it. As they drew nearer Westminster then, it was with Marjorie as it had been when they came to the tower. The priest was busy pointing out this or that building, the palace towers, the hall, the abbey behind, and St. Margaret's Church, as well as the smaller buildings of the court, and the little town that lay round about. But she listened as she listened to the noise that came from the streets clear across the water, attending to it, yet scarcely distinguishing one thing from another, and forgetting each as soon as she heard it. She was thinking all the while of Robin, and of the man whose face she had seen, of his beard and his long throat. Well, at least Robin was not yet a priest. The boat was already nearing the King's Stairs at Westminster when a new event happened that for a while distracted her. The first they saw of it was the sight of a number of men and women running in a disorderly mob, calling out as they ran, along the riverbank in the direction from Charing Old Cross towards Palace Yard. They appeared excited, but not by fear, and it was plain that something was taking place of which they wished to have a sight. As the priest stood up in the boat in order to have a clearer sight of what lay above the bank, three or four trumpet calls of a peculiar melody rang out clear and distinct, echoed back by the walls round about, plainly audible above the rising noise of a crowd that, it seemed, must be gathering out of sight. The priest sat down again, and his face was merry. "'You have come on a fortunate day, mistress,' he said to Marjorie. First Topcliffe, and now Her Grace. If we make haste, we may see her pass by.' "'Her Grace?' "'She will be going to dinner in Whitehall, after having taken the air by the river.' They will be passing the abbey now, but she will not be in her supreme state. I am sorry for that. 
As they rode in quickly over the last hundred yards that lay between them and the stairs, Marjorie listened to the priest as he described something of what the supreme state signified. He spoke of the long lines of carriages filled with the ladies and the infirm, preceded by the pikemen and the gentlemen pensioners carrying wands, and the knights followed by the heralds. Behind these, he said, came the officers of state immediately before the queen's carriage, and after her the guards of her person. But this will be but a tame affair, he said. I wish you could have seen a progress, with the arches and the speeches and the declamations, and the heathen gods and goddesses that reign round our Eliza when she will go to Ashridge or Havering. I have heard it said. And then the prow of the boat, turned deftly at the last instant, grated along the lowest stair, and the waterman was out to steady his craft. It was the very crown and summit of new sensation that Marjorie attained as she stood in an open gallery that looked onto the road from Westminster to Whitehall. Father Campion, speaking of a good friend of his that had his lodgings there, led them by a short turning or two that avoided the crowd, straight to the door of what appeared to Marjorie a mere warren of rooms, stairs, and passages. A grave little man, with a pen behind his ear, ran out upon their knocking at one of these doors, and led them straight through, smiling and talking, out into this very gallery where they now stood, and then vanished again. The gallery was such as those which Marjorie had noted on the way to the tower, a high-hung, airy place, running the length of the house, contrived on the level of the second floor, with the first-floor roof beneath and overhanging attics above. It was supported on massive oak beams, and protected from the street by a low balustrade of a height to lean the elbows upon it. It was on this balustrade that Marjorie leaned, looking down into the street. To the left, the narrow roadway curved off out of sight in the direction of Palace Yard. On the right, she could make out, a hundred yards away, some kind of a gateway that strode across the street and gave access, she supposed, to the palace. Opposite, the windows were filled with faces, and an enthusiastic loyalist was leaning, red-faced and vociferous, calling to a friend in the crowd beneath, from a gallery corresponding to that from which the girl was looking. Of the procession, nothing was at present to be seen. They had caught a glimpse of color somewhere to the east of the abbey as they turned off opposite Westminster Hall, and already the cry of the trumpets and the increasing noise of a crowd out of sight told the listeners that they would not have long to wait. Beneath, the crowd was arranging itself with admirable discipline, dispersing in long lines two or three deep against the walls, so as to leave a good space and laughing good-humouredly at a couple of officious persons in livery who had suddenly made their appearance. And then, as the country girl herself smiled down, an exclamation from Alice made her turn. At first it was difficult to discern anything clearly in the stream whose head began to discharge itself round the curve from the left. A row of brightly coloured uniforms moving four abreast came first, visible above the tossing heads of horses. Then followed a group of guards whose steel caps passed suddenly into the sunlight that caught them from between the houses and went again into shadow and then at last she caught a glimpse of the carriage, followed by ladies on grey horses, and forgot all the rest. This way and that she craned her head, gripping the oak post by which she leaned, unconscious of all except that she was to see her in whom England itself seemed to have been incarnated, the woman who, as perhaps no other earthly sovereign in the world at that time, or before her, had her people in a grasp that was not one of merely regal power. Even far away in Derbyshire, even in the little country manor from which the girl came, the aroma of that tremendous presence penetrated, of the woman whom men loved to hail as the Virgin Queen, even though they might question her virginity. The woman, our Eliza, as the priest had named her just now, who had made so shrewd an act of faith in her people that they had responded with an unreserved act of love. It was this woman, then, whom she was about to see, the sister of Mary and Edward, the daughter of Henry and Anne Boleyn, who had received her kingdom Catholic, and by her own mere might had chosen to make it Protestant the woman whose anointed hands were already red in the blood of God's servants, yet hands which men fainted as they kissed. Then, on a sudden, as Elizabeth lifted her head this side and that, the girl saw her. She was sitting in a low carriage, raised on cushions, alone. Four tall horses drew her at a slow trot. The wheels of the carriage were deep in mud, since she had driven for an hour over the deep December roads, but this added rather to the splendor within. But of this Marjorie remembered no more than an uncertain glimpse. The air was thick with cries. From window after window waved hands, and, more than all, the loyalty was real and filled the air like brave music. 
There then she sat, smiling. She was dressed in some splendid stuff, jewels sparkled beneath her throat. Once a hand in an embroidered glove rose to wave an answer to the roar of salute, and as the carriage came beneath, she raised her face. It was a thin face, sharply pear-shaped, ending in a pointed chin. A tight mouth smiled at the corners. Above her narrow eyes and high brows rose a high forehead, surmounted by strands of auburn hair drawn back tightly beneath a little headdress. It was a strangely peaked face, very clear-skinned, and resembled in some manner a mask. But the look of it was as sharp as steel, like a slender rapier, fragile and thin, yet keen enough to run a man through. The power of it, in a word, was out of all measure with the slightness of the face. Then the face dropped, and Marjorie watched the back of the head bending this way and that, till the nodding heads that followed hid it from sight. Marjorie drew a deep breath and turned. The faces of her friends were as pale and intent as her own. Only the priest was as easy as ever. So that is our Eliza, he said. Then he did a strange thing. He lifted his cap once more with grave seriousness. God save her grace, he said. <laughs>